Good morning. It's Friday, the 2nd of June, and I'm Govind Raj Ethiraj with the core report coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital and most rocking city in the world. Now, here are our two quick reports in theme, the hmm section and conversations of the day, where we grapple with more fallouts of the upcoming presumptive tax on traveling Indians and ask which GDP number is the right one. Here are our top reports of the day. Investment bank Morgan Stanley says there are 10 things going for India. The 20% presumptive tax on international credit cards is kicking in soon. The head of the country's top foreign exchange dealership association tells me there is a serious and discriminatory lacuna that's coming up. And hmm, former chief economic advisor Kaushik Basu raises a small social media storm when he says that India grew below potential at 3.28% between 2023. What indeed is he referring to? I ask Ashok K. Bhattacharya, Business Standard Editorial Director, Columnist and a wizard in simplifying India's economic data. And finally, Mumbai is heating up and power demand hit an all-time high of close to 4,000 megawatt just yesterday. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Investment bank Morgan Stanley has put out a very bullish report on the Indian economy titled How India Has Transformed in a Decade, highlighting mostly the key economic achievements of the current BJP government. Now, the report is insightful for what it presents and more importantly, sums up. None of the 10 changes Morgan Stanley highlights are unknown to a serious, particularly portfolio or direct investor, but seeing them bunched together does provide some context. Morgan Stanley, and somewhat unusually for a large portfolio investor, by the way, it manages around $1.3 trillion of assets, complains about the skepticism India receives from overseas investors and points out that these views ignore the significant changes that have taken place in the country, particularly since 2014, being, of course, the arrival of the BJP and the Narendra Modi government. In 10 years, Morgan Stanley says, I reckon it means nine, India has gained positions in the world order with significant consequences for the macro and market outlook. So let me run through the headlines of what these changes are and the outcome of these changes, all summarized nicely by Morgan Stanley, of course. Now, before I come to the changes, I was looking to see if there were any risk factors this banker could see. After some searching, I found them. The key risks or risks are a global recession, a fragmented general election outcome in 2024, sharp rise in commodity prices due to supply outages and shortages in skilled labor supply. Let me put it to you differently. The word risk appears once in the 34-page report, and that was right there. So the tone, the overtone, and the undertone are, of course, bullish. So let's move on. The 10 changes are First, supply-side policy reforms, some more general reference. Second, formalization of the economy, which I would think is a reference to the goods and services tax. Third, real estate regulation and development act, an important one, somehow not referred much to by most. Fourth, digitalizing social transfers. Fifth, insolvency and bankruptcy code. Sixth, flexible inflation targeting. Seventh, the focus on foreign direct investment, which by the way is falling now. Eighth, India's 401k moment, referring to mutual fund investments and how they are rising, quite true. Ninth, government support for corporate profits. Yes, corporate profits are higher because taxes are lower. And tenth, multinational corporation sentiment at a multi-year high. So the 10 implications of these 10 changes are as follows. And of course, as put down by Morgan Stanley, 
manufacturing and capital expenditure as percentage of GDP to increase steadily. Morgan Stanley says it expects a new cycle in manufacturing and capital investment as they estimate the share of both to rise in GDP by approximately 5 percentage points by 2031. Morgan Stanley estimates that India's export market share will rise to 4.5% by 2031, nearly double from 2021 levels with broad-based gains across goods and services exports. Now, this is in 10 years and while technically possible, it is a pretty stiff target. Major shift in consumption basket as India's per capita income increases from about $2,200 to about $5,200 by 2032. This could quite obviously have major implications for change in the consumption basket with an impetus to discretionary consumption. Lower volatility in inflation and shallower interest rate cycles, Morgan Stanley expects inflation to remain benign and less volatile, which would imply shallower rate cycles. Shallower rate cycles could also imply more benign equity market cycles and a benign trend in current account deficit. Morgan Stanley believes that India's structural transformation will feed into the saving investment dynamics implying gains for its external balance sheet with a progressively narrower trend in the current account deficit, which is the difference between what goes out and comes into the country. A profit boom. The share of profits in GDP has doubled from all-time lows hit in 2020 and are set to rise further, maybe even double from here, leading to strong absolute and relative earnings, says Morgan Stanley. Then Morgan Stanley says this explains India's apparently rich headline equity valuations. Triggered by supply-side reforms by the government, it expects a major rise in investments, a moderation in the current account deficit and an increase in credit to GDP to support the coming profit growth. It all links up quite nicely, actually. Lower correlation with oil prices, lower share of foreign portfolio investment in current account funding has reduced the stock market's negative return correlation with oil prices, especially when oil prices rise due to supply disruption. And then a lower correlation with US recession, as India's reliance on global capital market flows has reduced, which is true in the last few years, and this refers to the previous point as well, more Indian investors are investing via mutual funds and systematic investment plans and so on. Morgan Stanley now says that the market's sensitivity to a U.S. recession and U.S. Fed rate change also seems to be fading. Well, valuation re-rating and this reflects persistent domestic demand for stocks and a higher growth for longer. India is trading at a premium to long-term history, albeit well off highs and in line with recent history. And finally, India's beta to emerging markets has fallen to 0.6. Now, this is a consequence of improved macro stability and reduction in dependence on global capital market flows to fund the current account deficit. So you can see that there are many things that are coming together here. Uh, If you question one assumption, though, it's very likely that you'll be forced to question many others. For example, if you question that India is getting more insulated from global capital flows, then a lot of these other assumptions could also be under doubt. So this is where Morgan Stanley is, and this is how the future of this country looks from their perspective. So let's move on to the next story. How many Indians may never claim the promised refunds on India's new travel tax? A 20% presumptive tax on international spends will kick in fully from July 1st. In this form, India is perhaps the only country in the world that will impose a tax on expenditure by its citizens traveling overseas. India has a $250,000 limit per person for its citizens sending money overseas. Earlier credit card spends were not covered under this limit. Now they are because the government fears that people are blowing through their credit cards limit to the point 
that this 250,000 limit is being breached or at least that's how it sounds. More importantly, the first serious glitches and hitches are already emerging. So if you are a business traveler or a holiday traveler with a credit card and you stay within that 7 lakh rupees limit per year, you should be fine. The other exemptions are for education and health and surely if you search a little, find all the details on that. But on the other hand, if you are a person moving to another country for a typically blue collar job, you will pay 20% tax on the 500 to $1,000 that you will convert from rupees as you leave the country. Now, there is almost no way you will return to India or even think about collecting it back from local tax authorities as a refund, which is due to you at the end of the year, which you are entitled to or to be netted off against income. So I pose this question against the backdrop of this new guideline to Bhaskar Rao P, Managing Director of the 100-year-old Orient Exchange, a money changer, and also General Secretary of the All India Money Changers and Money Transfer Agents Association. He has been arguing that common people use cash, prepaid forex cards and wire transfers while the better off use credit cards. For the people who are traveling on education and medical, the TCS rules were there earlier where they had an exemption up to 7 lakh rupees. And above 7 lakh rupees, there was a TCS of 5%. And that will continue in the future also. So these two segments of people are not going to be affected because of this uh, new rule coming on TCS. Apart from these two segments, all other segments of people traveling abroad are going to be affected because of this new rule of TCS. In that now, earlier credit cards were not part of the TCS. And they were not part of LRS also because TCS is applicable on LRS remittances. So now, credit card was brought in the ambit of the, the LRS remittances. And because of that, the TCS. But immediately within two days of such announcement, because of the publicity, I think the TVs gave to that particular move by the government and RBA, Within two days, they got an exemption of 7 lakh rupees, basic exemption limit. So with that, yeah, credit card and debit card holders are going to be having a upper hand or we can say they are better off as compared to a normal customer who is buying currency and the prepaid card. Right. And my understanding is that almost 60% of overseas travelers are first-time travelers. And they are the ones who are more likely to buy Forex cards and so on. So they are also therefore likely to be exposed to this 20% TCS? First time travelers are 100% going to have currency in their pocket because definitely there is a fear factor when you go abroad. But beyond that, almost 90% of the people who are traveling will always have currency in their pocket, foreign currency in their pocket. So all those people are going to be affected. But the more affected will be poorer section of the people who cannot afford credit or credit card specifically or an international debit card. Because debit card here, when you talk about, it cannot be a rupee card which you can internally use in India, which is generally given by the bank. There are international debit cards which are different actually. And the credit card definitely is allowed only for the privileged cards. So those people may also carry some currency, but they still have a benefit of the 7 lakh rupees exemption. Whereas the normal person going for an employment, the 
parents going to see their children, retired people, senior citizens visiting their children and grandchildren. So these people are not the people who are going to file income tax return in India. Maybe they have a bank card. So those people invariably buy currency or sometimes the prepaid card, which is easily available, which is basically a replacement of currency or the tra- old times traveler's checks. So these people have to now pay 20% more at the time of buy. Yes, it is true that they can claim refund, but that is a long process. So when a person travels abroad for an employment, for example, how will he file a return after one year and claim a refund here? So he will will forget uh, about what he has paid here and he will start looking at what he has to do there in the Gulf countries where people are going for uh, driving, people, maids are going, so nurses are going. So these people will not have time to think about filing an income tax for $500 $500 what they bought here in India. So basically, we are charging them more, this 20%, though we call it as a TCS. Right. And that's an important point. My last question is, you know, if I'm uh, using my credit card internationally, it belongs to, let's say, a bank, let's say ICICI bank, and my bank account is HDFC bank. So how does the netting off happen at the back end? I mean, at what point does my bank know or the system know that I've crossed the 7 lakh mark and therefore, my it has to be again deducted against my uh, liberalized remittance scheme allowance of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and so on. What has happened is initially the government finance ministry when they announced they said the credit card spends were brought in the ambit of LRS remittances. When you talk about LRS remittances, remittances reporting happens to a central registry through the banking system. And whenever a person spends money under LRS, it is captured and sometimes even clear clearance is uh, taken. Ultimately, it goes into the reporting system of a central registry actually. And that will track whether you have crossed the 250,000 limit or not. Uh, Similarly, whether you have crossed 7 lakh limit or not. But when they exempted the credit card spend from the 7 lakhs, up to 7 lakhs, when the exemption was given now. Now, there is a twist there because they are not exempted 7 lakh rupees of uh, TCS on the uh, reportings, but they have made the LRS remit uh, exemption up to 7 lakhs. That means up to 7 lakhs spend will not come into the LRS reporting. I think this is a loophole which is created in the beginning itself. Now, there is no reporting of up to 7 lakh rupees to the central registry. That means if a person is having two different credit cards issued from two different banks, so it is 7 lakhs plus 7 lakhs. That is what it appears to be right now, based on the press release what we have seen. So that way, the exempting credit card or debit card spend from the TCS up to 7 lakh rupees would have been a better move as compared to the current move where it is exempted from the LRS limit itself. Right. Right, Mr. Rao. Thank you so much for joining us. Hmm. Which India growth number should you believe? Most economists have cheered the 7.2% GDP growth rate number for 2023 for the country. The last quarter of the same financial year was an even bigger surprise with GDP rising to 6.1%. While for various reasons, including global headwinds, the current year may not be as strong, there is a question 
and an interesting one and if only for academic reasons where we stand versus where we were before covid-19 hit in 2020 koshik c basu former chief economic advisor of the government of india now a professor of economics and international studies at cornell university said that india's growth rate of 7.2% in 2223 looks good but disappoints when you realize that growth in 2021 was minus 5.8% one of the world's lowest causing the baseline from where india's growth is computed to drop now here's the key one he says that india's annual growth over 2020 to 23 is 3.28% too low for a nation with so much talent so what does he exactly mean so rather than trying to explain it myself i thought i would catch up with ashok k bhattacharya editorial director and columnist at business standard and a whiz at all things indian economy particularly when it comes to numbers I don't think this is a case of an apples to oranges comparison. What Kaushik Basu is doing is taking the size of the Indian economy as it existed pre-COVID, which is 2019-20, uh, which was 145 trillion rupees. Now, as you know, that 2021 there was uh, COVID uh, and the economy contracted by almost seven percent or so. Now that came down uh, to around 137 trillion rupees. and the last two years we have seen the recovery come to 160 trillion rupees in last year now what koshik basu is arguing is this is the size of the economy in terms of recovering the lost output in the covid year is not large enough which is a fair point and i think while we must celebrate the robust nature of growth in 2223 at 7.2% Uh, more importantly the robust nature of the growth in the fourth quarter of the last financial year but at the same time we must be conscious uh, that the size of the economy is just about 10% over the pre covid year so you take an annualized basis it is around 3.4 or 3.2% which is what he is calculating i am not questioning koshik basu's mathematics but i am just giving you that what it actually means the size of the economy has grown but not at the pace it should have grown and how would this contrast with any other country or other countries whether in the in the west or east other countries have not done as well as india in this sphere you may see the smaller economies vietnam or even bangladesh have done better but nobody is saying that this growth rate that we have seen of 7.2% last year is something not without its challenges uh, if you break down the number as uh, your earlier show pointed out that the consumption level in the economy is worrying no consumption growth has not taken place one good thing that has happened is the investment rate has picked up but can the economy ride only on investment should it not also trigger growth in consumption particularly private consumption and that is slowing down private consumption is not growing as much as it should so that is one worry point and the second worry point is manufacturing is grown by just 1.3% so i think that's something which is connected to jobs so therefore there are worry points because we need to sustain this growth it's not a situation not to celebrate this growth but at the same time you should be mindful that growth needs to be sustained and if you need to sustain it you must worry about uh, boosting private consumption as well right so could one say that what koshik basu is arguing in a way is that which he also says is that we could grow beyond or we need to grow beyond given our potential 
or regardless of potential we just need to grow faster because we are obviously such a large country and we have so many other economic challenges in from the past there is no doubt about it i think the reason why he is talking about the need to grow faster is jobs as i told you manufacturing has grown by only 1.3% last year now this manufacturing jobs clearly could be an issue so if the size of the economy is directly related to the jobs that you create now if you grew only a little more than 3% annually in the last 3 years clearly you may not have met the demand for jobs that have risen in these 3 years you may not have met that demand adequately so the concern arising out of his analysis those concerns are very very valid right so last question uh, akb so how are you also aligning with many other economists who are predicting that 23 24 is likely to be slower it will certainly be slower uh, than 7.2% the question is can the indian economy sustain its private consumption maintain its investment rate and the indian corporate sector continues to grow its investment as well as expenditure so now these are critical questions i don't think the worry is the domestic economy the worry is the global economy because if your exports if your global demand is not picking up as it should and if the recession trend is to be seen in germany as well as it might spread to europe and us may also be affected to some extent so india's growth story if it has to be impacted it will be impacted by the global situation but the domestic economy therefore needs to be uh, looked at more closely from a policy corrective point of view right akb thank you so much for joining me and finally before i go mumbai has hit a peak power demand of almost 4000 megawatts as temperatures surged and humidity rose in the city on wednesday temperatures hit a high of 34 degrees celsius but usually felt higher and the highest load was at 3:30 pm where it peaked at about 3968 megawatts stood there for 15 minutes or so and then began dropping according to reports the load triggered power cuts in various parts of western and eastern suburbs in the island city though as many of you know though you don't live in the most rocking city in the world mumbai rarely experiences power cuts Earlier the highest demand was recorded on April 19th at 3893 megawatts a little lower. However to put things in context and to keep all my friends in Delhi happy, Delhi hit a peak power demand of close to 8000 megawatts or twice as much as Mumbai in summer. Now this happened last summer, very likely it would hit or come close to this number this summer. This is obviously worrying for a lot of reasons and I bring this up more to leave something for all of us to think about as our own consumption of cooling devices cooling appliances and devices increased and we are also grappling with the outcome of all this fossil fuel burning have a great friday and weekend ahead see you monday morning this was the core report with me govind raj ethiraj do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. 
write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.